This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 24th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. After China's admission to the World Trade Organization and permanent normal trading relations status with the U.S., a China shock in the decades that followed gutted the working class in America. At least that's one emerging narrative from politicians and other commentators. But is it true? Scott Lincecum has a new Cato paper testing the China shock. He says the facts don't quite line up with the claims. Some prominent economists have, uh, just in recent weeks, come out saying, we were wrong, which is a great thing for economists to do. In fact, more economists should do that. Um, But in this case, they were talking about how wrong they were about China and the role that the uh, U.S. trade relations and otherwise pretty friendliness during the 90s and 2000s played out. So- as you understand it, what is what is the claim that uh, these economists, Paul Krugman is probably the most uh, notable one. What what do you make of the claims that they're making? Well, on the one hand, um, I, I think it's great that that any sort of expert is willing to look back at at his or her previous predictions and strongly held views and say, look, the data have changed and I've changed my views. So that's great. My my only problem is well it's twofold really you know first is that i think when it comes to china trade um there's a lot of uh, ex post rationalization so people are 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 thinking about uh decisions that occurred in the 1990s and 2000s and they are then looking at what has happened since and they're applying what they know now to what decision makers in the 90s, uh, uh, to, to the actions of decision makers in the 90s, and thus saying, oh, well, they were clearly mistaken and wrong. And that's that strikes me as extremely unfair, um, because you really want to evaluate the, the conclusions based on the, um, the information that the decision makers had at the time. I think that's the first problem. Second problem is that they they extrapolate from these mistakes all of these um, grand conclusions about uh, policy, and in this case, trade policy more broadly, um, and use that as an as a uh, that mistake as grounds to um, propose all sorts of changes to uh, kind of mainstream either economic policy or labor policy or you name it. And that really strikes me as problematic because um, they are taking an isolated event and one that was very unique in terms of China's entry into the World Trade Organization, China's in, and just global economic engagement with China. And um, they're really trying to apply that to non-China things. Um, and that that. It raises all sorts of issues because you know if you if you agree that the China shock occurred and was a problem, but you also acknowledge that the China shock ended ten years ago and uh, was a really unique moment in uh, U.S. and global uh, economic history, then there's not that many lessons you really can draw from it. All right, so uh, so economists uh, often or. I should say commentators uh, more broadly, draw a line at 1999 
and they point to 1999 as being this critical moment when U.S. policy changed and a specific kind of rise of China began. What what do you make of that? What what is you know flesh out what that claim is, and then what's wrong with it in your view? Right. So let's actually. I think it's great. Let's step back really quickly. What are we talking about when we talk about the China shock? Well, so uh, uh, several economists um, got together and published some landmark research um, about five years ago now, um, examining the period of night from about 1999 to 2011, and they looked at um, the the increase in Chinese imports and those imports effects on jobs in the United States and particularly in specific uh, areas, specific regions. And they they said, whoa, look at this. This increase in imports over this period um, was uh, destroyed 2.4 million jobs. Um, then another group of researchers uh, right around the same time actually pinpointed the exact moment this occurred, um, and that is the United States uh, granting China permanent normal trade relations uh, 20 years ago, actually. We're about to celebrate the 20th anniversary of that. Um, And then China's subsequent entry into the World Trade Organization. And they said, aha, this singular policy flipped the switch and is alone responsible for over a million of those job losses. And and this, as I, I wrote in my paper, I think really suffers from uh, this this framework. This narrative suffers from some pretty significant flaws. Um, the first is that look, China's engagement, China's process of entering the global economy, China's process of entering the WTO was not simply a switch that American policymakers flipped in the late 1990s. Particularly, as some like to add. Um, on the grounds of some sort of naive belief that China would become the next Japan, that China would become a democracy, this wonderful liberal place, and um, the world would would sing, um, you know, Coke commercials in harmony. So, so that that is just incorrect. Um, the fact is that this process of China joining the global economy, China joining the WTO, took uh, over 15 years. It was the result of a global negotiation among dozens of WTO member countries. It was an extremely contentious process. Um, The United States, in fact, was the last holdout among major industrialized nations, and in fact, kept going back to China and demanding all sorts of additional uh, what we call WTO plus commitments. Things like, for example, accepting a special safeguard mechanism the United States could employ to block Chinese imports should they increase too quickly into the United States. Um, so this really belies the idea that, that it was really a shock at all. I mean, there was nothing really shocking about this. We this was this was anticipated and occurring. But then the second part of that is that it wasn't a U.S. only process. Uh, the fact is that there were two other very important uh, parties here. The first is China. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that China's dramatic increases in export competitiveness in the late 90s and early 2000s had nothing to do with U.S. policy, but instead had to do with Chinese policy. In fact, China's own market-based reforms, so things like lowering its own import tariffs, uh, acknowledging property rights, um, privatizing industries, so forth and so on, um, were actually responsible. Those market-based reforms were responsible for for the majority, substantial majority of China's competitiveness. The other major party is all 
all the other countries in the world and all the other WTO members. And it, it turns out, again, looking back at, at the history um, and the documentation of the WTO, that, that look, every other member of the WTO had agreed to admit China to the WTO in the late 90s and early 2000s. So the United States was not simply this gatekeeper. It was really, as I said, the lone holdout. And thus Chinese admitting China to the WTO or passing permanent normal trade relations turns out to be a very pragmatic move by the United States. Because if the United States had not done so, well, China was still going to get into the World Trade Organization. And every other WTO member, um, including countries like the EU and Japan and others that have a lot of competitor companies for American manufacturers and American farmers and the rest, they were all they were going to get the benefits of China's new WTO commitments, its market access commitments, whereas the United States was going to be on the outside looking in. Combine that with foreign policy issues, whether it's in North Korea or wherever, and you actually see, again, looking at the historical documentation, that China's uh, admission to the WTO was one based on simple commercial foreign policy and practical realities, not this kind of grand dream of Chinese democratization. And so when you combine all of that, you really see that that this was a far more complex and far more nuanced decision made in the late 90s and 2000s, as opposed to, again, as some commentators, economists, and others now try to claim, that it was just this um, egregious mistake um, and that you know it was all based on one U.S. policy decision in, in the year 2000. Even during, uh, before, and now after uh, this uh, China shock, U.S. manufacturing employment uh, as a percentage of employment in the United States seems to have continued its fairly slow, steady decline. Uh, which is the opposite story of U.S. manufacturing output. So uh, for the United States, for other countries that have uh, dealt with the, the China shock, what has been the result? Right. Well, and, and so that's a really important part of the, the paper that I finished is that, um, you know, the China shock narrative also depends on just the China shock studies showing the harms supposedly caused by Chinese imports. But since those, since those studies have come out, we've actually seen a, a, uh, a, a library full of other academic work on the effects of the China shock. And, and what we see are a few really important things. First are benefits to Chinese imports, uh, our benefits to the U.S. economy, to um, from Chinese imports. The, the most obvious are consumer benefits. One study found, for example, that every American gets uh, $250 of extra spending power every year for the rest of his or her life um, because of China's uh, entry into the World Trade Organization and the China shock. Right. So there's big consumer benefits. Beyond that, though, we also see um, other studies have done general, a general equilibrium analysis, not simply focusing on these little uh, commuting zones or these regions like the original China shock literature did. So they look at the U.S. economy as a whole, and they see that um, we actually have seen substantial benefits, even for manufacturing, in terms of overall uh, welfare, so net benefits. 
happens. Now, that's certainly not to say that everybody um, came out ahead, but as as an as the country in net. Uh, on net, we 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 ended up better. Um, there also are a, a great series of studies looking at uh, U.S. manufacturing firms and how they benefited um, in terms of um, using imported Chinese inputs uh, to produce globally competitive products, or in terms of increasing jobs, just simply not increasing jobs in production, so assembly line work, instead increasing them in services. So we saw these same firms um, uh, hiring more in terms of, you know, in R&D and marketing and engineering and the rest. So um, this, again, paints a really more complicated uh, and nuanced picture of the China shock. Um, the other thing that that we've seen is, um, you know, there's been a, a lot of work about what Chinese imports actually displaced. Um, and it turns out that, um, you know, studies from the Fed and others show that Chinese imports actually replaced more um, other imports instead of domestic production. And that's really critically important because that really gets to a counterfactual that the China shock narrative, um, that, that the anti-PNTR narrative that we hear so much never really addresses. You know, what would have happened to the U.S. economy in the absence of, of Chinese imports, in the absence of China's accession to the WTO? And what we see is that really um, this, these same pressures on American manufacturing jobs caused by trade or technology or whatever would have still happened. And so we were not going to save 2.4 million uh, manufacturing jobs by somehow denying China's entry to the WTO as if we could have done that anyway. And in fact, we actually have um, anecdotal evidence of this exact thing. So uh, when President Obama uh, first uh, entered office in 2009, he used that special safeguard I mentioned that the United States had negotiated to block Chinese tires. And subsequent analysis showed that that blocking Chinese imports of tires did not actually increase domestic production and employment of tires, particularly in the long term. Instead, it increased imports from all these other countries like Brazil and Thailand and the rest. And that again gets to the idea that um, there was no sort of magic solution um, in blocking Chinese imports that was going to save um, manufacturing jobs. Um, and the last thing that that was in this, uh, you know, looking again at, at could we have stopped this? Um, there's another set of studies that shows that the, the industries that were most affected by Chinese import competition um, during the last decade were those that had actually um, kind of were shifting out of the United States anyway. So they had started in the Northeast and then they moved down into the South and the Rust Belt area. And they were these kind of low human capital, uh, labor intensive positions that were already on their way out of the United States anyway. So again, um, it was just simply uh, Chinese imports were perhaps the last push, but they were uh, tipping off the cliff anyway. To the extent that uh, China's ascent and accession to the WTO caused uh, disruptions uh, around the world in in other countries. What would what do we know about uh, maybe the interior uh, domestic regulatory frameworks that may have prevented uh, some industries from responding adequately, from transitioning uh, without uh, as much difficulty as we might expect. Right. And and that's another 
really important point um, and, and something that, that the discussion of the China shock doesn't ever discuss. And that is that if you read the China shock papers, you see quite quickly that the, the authors are not um, there to blame trade. They're not there to blame import competition or China. They're, what they're really saying is that, look, for some reason, these, these jobs, these workers, and these companies didn't adjust. And there, so this is not really a trade problem. It's an adjustment, adjustment problem. And so in the paper, I really examine a lot of the um, regulatory and other things that the United States has done over the years to actually inhibit uh, worker adjustment and labor adjustment and business dynamism, we call it. And these include things like, you know, occupational licensing. In fact, there was a study um, just out yesterday that showed that U.S. occupational licensing um, has had a really substantial impact on the ability of workers to move from one job to another on this kind of labor uh, mobility and dynamism. And then outside of that, there are all sorts of tax and trade and other things that uh, the United States, either federal government or state and local governments have done that have really uh, inhibited companies' uh, ability to compete in the global marketplace. And, you know, I mentioned trade and, you know, that's a big one these days, given the kind of globalized nature of supply chains and the place manufacturers uh, American manufacturers sit in the supply chain, is that we impose massive um, duties uh, on imported manufacturing inputs. And of course, in, in certain cases, in the uh, for the last few years, the Trump administration has increased those those uh, tariffs, and that simply is going to hurt those downstream manufacturers. Um, and it would not uh, actually help. The, the the workers and the, the companies that are that are seeking the protection. So yeah, there are all these other things that we could have been doing to improve uh, the ability of workers and companies to adjust, and we weren't. And the, the real irony there is that during during this time of of uh, substantial disruption, again due to trade or technology or whatever, um, you know, a lot of our governments um, were working to inhibit the necessary adjustments we needed. Finally, here to the extent that uh, commentators, some are some of which are economists, uh, point to 1999 as this important year uh, in the history of the Chinese economy in relation to the rest of the globe. What different decision could U.S. policymakers have made that would have prevented uh, what we now call the China shock? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's really one decision we could have made that would have prevented the China's rise. And, and that really, again, um, gets to this counterfactual question that, that the, the critics don't, don't ask is, um, what would have happened had the United States somehow denied, uh, had somehow rejected permanent normal trade relations, um, or even more unrealistically have blocked China's entry into the WTO. Um, the, the fact is that, um, first, uh, China was getting into the WTO. Um, there was simply no way um, for the United States to be the lone holdout in blocking the accession of a reforming economy of with over a billion people and nuclear weapons, um, simply denying that country access to an open multilateral trade organization that already included 
Cuba and a lot of other countries um, that either currently or previously had large levels of state involvement or human rights problems and the rest. It just simply wasn't realistic. The, the second problem, though, is that um, the even if China had somehow um, been denied access to the World, Organiza World Trade Organization, the, the fact is that China would still have been able to achieve um, a lot of its objectives and, and still would have been able to uh, become richer and more successful because there are all sorts of ways that they could have avoided um, the imposition of U.S. tariffs through either customs law um, issues or shipping to uh, Japan and having parts incorporated in Japan and having those come to the United States or whatever. Um, and again, the fact that the, the vast majority of China's export competitiveness had, again, nothing to do with U.S. tariff policy, but had much more to do with, or anybody's tariff policy, much more ha had to do with China's own internal reforms, which it was undertaking at that time. So there's really this idea that PNTR somehow fueled China's rise, and it's a mistake we've been paying for ever since, really is belied by those facts. And instead, um, you know, it's really important for us to look at all the mistakes that have been made since uh, China's WTO accession, whether it's uh, a lack of WTO disputes, whether it's abandoning the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whether, you know, it's uh, starting trade wars with our allies in the last few years. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that the United States could have and should have done differently that it didn't. But PNTR and engagement with China generally in the late 90s and early 2000s really isn't the mistake uh, it's made out to be. Scott Lincecum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.